0: To the book of Ephesians chapter 1. book of Ephesians chapter 1. We will look again in verses 7 through 10. Ephesians 1, verses 7 to 10. and Focus primarily on verse 10 this morning. But to get the context, here the Apostle Paul writing to this local church at Ephesus says, "...in whom we have redemption through His blood." The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace, wherein He hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of His will according to the good pleasure which He hath purposed, His good pleasure which He hath purposed in Himself. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. Ephesians was written as a doctrinal and a practical explanation of the work of God as it relates to the salvation of sinners how God saves, and what does that produce. That's what this book is about. In Paul's mind, the heart of everything about God's plan and purposes relating to our salvation should be learned and understood by every member of the local church. He is writing to a church. He's not writing to a building at this address, but he's writing to the people who are the members of this church. In his mind, every member needs to know what is in this book, What is needs to know what is in this letter. He sets forth two major reasons why God should be worshipped in the local assembly. The first is that everything God does in salvation on our behalf is according to the good pleasure of his will. God delights in saving sinners. God delights in saving sinners. And it's something we don't want to ever forget. According to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. God is finds pleasure in that. And the second is that everything related to our salvation is sure to come to pass. Because God is the one who has set it in order. God is the one who has predetermined it. Beginning with election and then predestination and adoption in eternity past, God has determined to save sinners. Moving into the realm of time with redemption and forgiveness and the sealing of the Holy Spirit, God is determined to save sinners. And then moving into the future with all things brought together in unity and with an inheritance waiting for us in glory, God is determined to save sinners. This is Paul's argument. God takes pleasure in doing his will, and his will is that sinners would be saved. And so in the last two weeks we have been looking at verse 9 where he speaks of the mystery of His will. And uh, I have uh, defined that as uh, that word mystery as something that was hidden in the Old Testament but was revealed in the New Testament. And we have seen that in New Testament time, God opens up the truth related to His eternal Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That He who was in the eternity. Was born of a virgin. God, as the old timers used to say, contracted to a span. And He became flesh, made of a woman, and made under the law, made in the likeness of men, so that as God and man, fully God and man, at the same time, in one undivided person, He would go to Calvary's cross and save His people from their sins. And He did that. And all that he did in coming forward as a man to reveal the Father to us. As I said last week, we do not know God outside of the Scriptures. And we do not know God outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you will know the Father, if you will come to know the Father in heaven, you must know him through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other way to come to know him. The second thing we looked at is that uh, in the New Testament, God reveals that the kingdom uh, which Jesus Christ established during his earthly ministry was a spiritual one and not a physical one. I did not refer to it before, but I will refer to it this morning. It was prophesied that it would be so by the prophet Daniel. Uh, Daniel chapter 2 and verse 44 says and in the days of these kings speaking of Nebuchadnezzar's idol and the kings that are represented in the clay and the and the iron mixture in the days of those kings shall the god of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed there's a definite defining term concerning this kingdom all the rest of the kingdoms come to an end but this one is not going to be destroyed And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. All the other kingdoms on the face of the earth are left to men, but not this one. And, or continuing on, but shall break in pieces and consume all these other kingdoms, from Babylon to the clay and iron, broken in pieces by this kingdom, and it shall stand forever. Daniel 2, verse 44. Go and uh, meditate and... Study about that and see what was prophesied by Daniel come to pass in the days of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord spoke of it in John 18 and verse 36 and said, my kingdom is not of this world. The apostle Paul spoke of it in Romans 14 and verse 17 where he says the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. That was very critical in the Old Testament, wasn't it? Not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. And so it's not these things that are outward, but it is spiritual. And then we saw that in the New Testament, God reveals the gospel as a message of salvation by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And not a message or a covenant of works given to the Hebrew people at Mount Sinai. In Ephesians chapter 6 verse 19 I said uh, reading and for me that utterance may be given unto me uh, that I may open my mouth boldly and make known the mystery of the gospel. It's hard for us being on this side of the Old Testament to realize that the gospel is a mystery. But it was a mystery until it was revealed in the New Testament era. Colossians opens up this mystery even more. The book of Colossians chapter 1 Verse 26 and verse 27 says, Even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, verse 27, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is, and he defines it, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now we know that. You know that because you've been taught that. But put yourself in the days when this was written. When the Jews were being brought in and in their mind it wasn't about Christ in me, the hope of glory. It was about circumcision and the Sabbath and sacrifices and all that I can do to be good enough to merit the favor of God. And in the gospel hidden... And then bursting on the scene comes Jesus Christ preaching the gospel. And it is Christ in you, the hope of glory, that is the message of the New Testament. And we've seen in the New Testament how God reveals that adoption includes both Jews and Gentiles. Both are included in God's plan of salvation. Both part of his kingdom. And that again was a mystery in the Old Testament because the Jews thought they were the chosen nation and all the rest of the nations were left in darkness. And then bursting out in the New Testament is this truth that no, that God has always intended that Gentiles, that's me, that's you, should be included in his family. Paul writes about it in the book of Ephesians chapter 3. Beginning in verse 4 and going down to verse 6, he says, whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge of the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. That, here it is, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs too and all part of one body? That was hidden in the Old Testament and revealed in the New Testament. And so that's what we've looked at thus far. And this morning we want to go to verse 10 in Ephesians chapter 1. Because the mystery that Paul is speaking about here in chapter 1 is that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, He, God, might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in Him. Now, we're going to take some time this morning and break down this verse. That, is every word important? You've heard me say that from this pulpit. Every word is important. What is Paul saying? In order that. In other words, what Paul is saying when he used the word that is that that this relates to God's purpose. In order for God to accomplish his purpose, God needs to be involved in doing this. Gathering together in one. That it is a part of the purpose of God that there be one body. One family. One people in glory. Out of all the nations, God's going to put them all together as one. And we can't hardly see that today, can we? We can hardly find a Baptist church that's one. We'll get to that a little bit later in the message. But that is the purpose of God in this age of grace. Paul is saying that included with blessing you, with understanding of the mysteries of God, that God also intends that we understand that His purpose includes gathering everything together again as it had been before sin entered. It's all going back to a time when everything was united with God. We're not there yet, but the process of it is taking place. This takes place in what Paul calls the dispensation of the fullness of time. That in, the dispensation of the fullness of time. This word in indicates to us that Paul is teaching us that a point in time, a point in the history of mankind has been reached where God intends to do something different. The Old Testament was about division. Israel was separated from all the rest. There was no unity among the nations. It was all about a single nation and the focus was there. But then the New Testament comes. And out of the mouth of God himself, he says, it's not about division, it's about unity. It's about me drawing out of all the nations of the world and making them one people. And if your mind is still divided up as it was in the Old Testament, you need to change your way of thinking because the New Testament is not about divisions anymore. It's about unity. God is in the process of gathering together in one all things in Christ. All things in Christ. Here, the word dispensation points to a time when God entered into the world's history and changed the whole focus of what He was doing among the nations. Dispensation, the word refers to a specific time in which God is administering things according to His purpose at that time. Okay? At that time. So, what is God doing in the time frame of the New Testament? What is God doing now? That's the question. The answer is multitude. But basically what God is doing is God has purposed to abundantly bestow his grace and mercy upon all the nations of the earth. Among all the nations of the earth. It is a time in which the Lord Jesus Christ would be sent to save His people from their sins. Galatians 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time was come, it came, that moment set in eternity past when God would send His Son. Not a moment earlier, not a moment late, that in the fullness of time when it was come, God sent His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to deliver them from the curse of the law. It is a time in which Gentiles would begin to have have the gospel preached to them. And they would be coming in to the kingdom of God in multitudes. Ephesians chapter 3. Verse 8, Unto me, whom less than the least of all saints is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. What a tremendous blessing God has bestowed upon me, Paul says, that I can preach to Gentiles. Remember, that's a Jew preaching. That's a Jew writing this letter. And what a grace God has bestowed upon me that now, now I can go to the Gentiles. I can sit with them and eat with them and stay in their houses and I can preach to them and I can encourage them to come to Christ and meet God and the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the ministry that I have. Remember how how angry the church of Jerusalem was when it, they found out that Peter went to Cornelius' house. Of all things, Peter, you Jew, you you went into the house of a a Gentile. What are you doing? And he said, God told me to. And besides that, when I preached, the Spirit of God fell on them. And the mouth of the church was shut. Well then, they said, God has bestowed repentance on the Gentiles too. Bingo. Am I allowed to say that? (laughs) Light. Came on. It's a time when God bestows grace abundantly upon Gentiles. The Old Testament with its priesthood and its sacrifices and and its temple and its and its circumcision and its Sabbath. And it's emphasis upon everything outward. It's passed away now. It's gone. It's dead. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 13, if you haven't seen it, if you haven't understood it, that Old Testament covenant that God made with Israel that had this if-then formula in it, if you do this, then I'm going to do that, that works formula in that covenant of works that God gave to that nation. It's gone. It's finished. Hebrews chapter 8, I believe, written by Paul. It says in verse 13, In that he saith, when God said a new covenant, he's quoting out of the Old Testament, when God said a new covenant, he had, in when he said that, Paul is saying, he had made the first old. When God says something new, that means the, the first one has become old. Now, Here's the conclusion of that. Now that which decayeth uh, and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. Now that which decayeth, that which is worn out and obsolete. The word decay. The Greek word. It's worn out and obsolete. If you're still thinking in terms of the old covenant, it's worn out and it's obsolete. It decayeth. And, Hebrews 8, in verse 13, and waxeth old. It is getting older and older and older, declining and declining and declining, and is ready to vanish away. Hebrews 8, 13. Vanish away means to disappear. To come to an end. To be finished. To be abrogated. All those words wrapped up in the Greek behind, it is vanishing away. It has come to an end. God has put it away. And by the way, God's not going to reinstate it. God is going to save people and has only ever saved people by grace, through faith in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean for us? Well, this is the very reason why a New Testament Baptist church should never adopt anything related to Old Testament worship. Okay? Adopting it relating to its worship. I'm talking about sacrifices. I'm talking about a priesthood. I'm talking about some idea of a temple. I'm talking about circumcision and and Sabbath keeping according to the law. Okay? Never adopt anything out of the old covenant of works because we're in a new covenant of grace. Our baptism, that that baptism that we practice for believers only, that baptism was not based upon Old Testament Jewish washings. You know there's an argument out there, right? That all that John the Baptist did was just continue a Jewish washing and put a Christian face on it. Uh, Nothing could be further from the truth. And nothing reveals a lack of understanding of the scriptures than that kind of thinking. John himself said, God told me to come baptize. John didn't say, I got my baptism from the Jewish washings. Our ordinance of baptism is ordained by God for a new and different kind of organization called the local church. The Lord's table does not contain anything out of the Old Testament covenant of works. Stay with me a minute on this. It is not a continuation or a remaking of the Passover. That was what God gave to Israel. It cannot be proven from the Word of God. Listen carefully because I don't want... and, And talk to me afterwards if you have some problems with this. It cannot be proven from the Word of God that the Lord Jesus Christ took unleavened bread and wine from the Passover itself. Go back and study the Passover. Was there any wine in it? Now, the meal afterwards that lasted for seven days, that's something different. Okay? I'm talking about just the Passover. Go back and search it out. Look up every reference in the the Old Testament to the word Passover. And see if you can find it. Okay? I'm challenging you to search the Scriptures to see whether these things be true or not. Okay? I don't want you to just take my word for it. I believe this church is responsible before God to answer for themselves. I am responsible for God to preach the Word of God to you as I understand it. If I get it wrong, I'm going to correct it from the same pulpit where I preached it. Your responsibility is to search and see if these things be true or not. So study and search. The whole, the Lord's table is a new ordinance delivered to a new kind of organization, the local church. We have wine and bread and it represents something. It represents something. And by the way, I used to believe it came out of the Passover. I, many, many years. So uh, I am not. Uh, I'm not saying that if you believe that you've just missed it because I missed it too. Uh, I talked to you, JC, about this. How long has it been, brother? Year, year and a half, whatever. Yeah. A new ordinance. What I'm saying to you this morning is. That in the new covenant, that which has passed away is not something that we're, oh, let's go back over here and, and pull out something over there and bring it over here. Amen. And bring it over here. Ask me any question you want to about that. JC did. <laughs> and some of the other brethren too. And I appreciate that from you, brethren. I do. You have no idea how much I appreciate you asking me questions. I have no idea how much I appreciate that. In this dispensation, in the dispensation of the fullness of times, as it is in uh, Ephesians 1.10, and the fullness of time as it is in Galatians 4, uh, 4, in this time frame when God is working to gather all things together in one, God is not using the old, He is establishing something new. He is not putting new wine in old wine skins. And he is not taking a new cloth and sewing it on an old piece of cloth. Our Lord warned us about that. He's not doing that. The word dispensation means a time frame in which God is working. But, but, and it needs to be added quickly here. The Greek word behind the English word dispensation has another meaning also. Has another meaning also, and you can look this up for yourself. It has the idea of a personal responsibility, a stewardship, a specific task appointed by God. In Ephesians 1 verse 10, God Himself has appointed Him the task of bringing together all things in one. We believe salvation is of God, right? That God is the one that saves the soul, God is the one that adds them to his family, God is the one that brings them into his kingdom, God is doing that work. But the same word is used in reference to us also, to churches and preachers and to individual members of churches. For instance, go with me to First Corinthians chapter nine and verse seventeen. First Corinthians chapter nine and verse seventeen the word dispensation is used again, the English word, the same Greek word. Listen to how Paul is using it regarding his ministry. 1 Corinthians 9, 17 says, For if I do this thing willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will a dispensation of the gospel is committed unto me. A responsibility of the gospel is committed to me. A stewardship of the gospel has been committed into my hands. I am responsible to preach the gospel to sinners to bring them into a relationship with God. Well, you just said, preacher, that Ephesians chapter 1 says God is doing that. Yes, God is doing that. Isn't there a conflict then with what you just got through saying where Paul says, I am responsible for preaching the gospel. There is no conflict with the scriptures. There is no contradiction. God is working. And because God is working, the Son of God is working. And and the Spirit of God is working. And because they are working, we are working. We are involved in this stewardship of preaching the gospel. Listen to... 1 Corinthians chapter 4, go with me there. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, this time the same word is translated into the English word steward. 1 Corinthians 4 verse 1, Let a man so account of us as the ministers of Christ, as the servants of Christ, and stewards of the mysteries of God, God has revealed by His Spirit the mysteries of God. Now we are stewards of that. We are responsible for that. It had, they've been committed to us. And now we do something about what God has revealed to us. We don't just take the teaching of the Scripture and say, Whoa, that's neat, that's good. I'm going to store it back, put it on my shelf, and go about my life. No, God has revealed something to us. Now I am responsible to do something with what God has told me. What has God said? I say that all the time to you. What has God said? Has God said anything? If He has, what has He said? And we adopt that. What God has said is our truth. The word stewards here in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. Moreover, verse 2 says, It is required. It is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. When God shows you something, and now has entrusted that to you, now you are required to be faithful to it. That is a hard task, rather, because there's a lot of information in this book, right? And then God shows us something. Oh, what am I to do with that, preacher? Be faithful. Be faithful to what God is showing. So the word stewards here means those who have a personal responsibility for God having revealed the mysteries of God to them. A personal responsibility. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 10, Paul is teaching that in the New Testament time, God is gathering together in one all things in Christ. In other texts in the scriptures that use exactly the same word, We learn that we have a responsibility to do all that we can do to be involved in a work that results in unifying as much as we can unify on this earth. To bring together as one. To to be unified with regard to the gospel and the gospel message. That's why in this pulpit, as long as I am your pastor, I will not have a man in the pulpit that doesn't agree with the gospel message in this church understands from the word of God. I won't do that to you. I won't bring somebody in that's going to end up calling you down and having you sign a, a pledge card and now announcing you as being saved because you prayed the right prayer. I'm not going to do that. I'm unified with God and you in what the gospel is. Are you unified over the gospel? Unified in relation to His church? Unified in relation to His kingdom and His people in general? Do you have a heart to labor alongside God, with God, as it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, with God in His kingdom to bring about a oneness, a unity among the people of God. Gather together in one is what the English says. It's one Greek word. Gather together in one, which means to bring it back to what it was originally. To gather it together so that it is restored. To gather it together so that it's repaired. Are we involved in that as a church? When sin entered, brethren, it brought with it chaos and confusion. It brought with it division and strife. It brought with it everything that divides. Everything in the earth was divided. Man was divided from God in heaven. Jew was divided from Gentiles. Nation was divided against nation. Brother against brother. We saw this morning in Sunday school, the eleven brothers of Joseph divided against him, hated him. That's sin. That's what sin does. It does it in the families. It does it in churches. It does it in kingdoms. Sin destroys. But, the work of the Lord Jesus Christ changed all that. God began the process of gathering together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and in earth is not only accomplished in the salvation of both Jew and Gentiles. Think with me a minute. As God reached out to the Jews and saved them and reached out to the Gentiles and saved them and put them in the same local church and they've got cultural differences and language differences and food differences and drink differences and dress differences and they're so different. Come with me to the foreign field. And the first thing you're going to say is, it is so different. Yes, it is. And there are many on the foreign field that haven't yet grasped the truth that despite the differences, God put them together to make them one. The caste system in India has never been broken by Christianity. Never. India is divided up into four cast and then untouchables and then the less of the less, least of the least. And among the tribals no matter how hard I tried, no matter how hard I preached, no matter what I taught among the tribals, if you were a member of this tribe, this was your church and your tribe met there. And if you were a member of this tribe, then this is your church and your tribe met here. And if you were a member of this church and then a tribe, then your your tribe met here. And that's the way it was. And, and in Assam, in the city of Guwahati, where there are 27 different tribes residing, I labored and labored to try to get people from this tribe and people from this tribe to come together in one place. And they just couldn't do it. They just couldn't do it. But that's the work of the gospel. When Jesus Christ died, it was the purpose of bringing everything back together as one with God. Everything. Everything. Are you a Christian this morning? Are you still going astray, doing your own thing? Separating Monday through Saturday from the rest of Christianity? If so, you're living contrary to God and His revealed will that there should be a unity. Are you living your own life the way you want to live it and not in agreement with the Lord's kingdom and not in agreement with the Lord's church and not in agreement with the Lord's word? If so, then you're living contrary to the unity that God is working to produce contrary to that oneness that is part of what Christianity is. Together in one, Ephesians says, refers to unity reflected in our life among our brothers and our sisters in our local church with God and his way that is revealed in his word. We are bound as a people to be one with our God and one with his word as much as we know and understand. And all of us are still growing in that area. But as much as we know and understand that every member of our church should be involved in endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, Ephesians 4:3. The unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We are Are we unified with regard to God's purposes for our church? Do we even understand what the purpose of God is in establishing a church? There are two purposes of God, generally speaking, in the Scriptures for a church. The first is that every member of that church will be built up in the most holy faith, edified. The edification of the saints is is the first part of the ministry of a local church. God gives gifts to the church, including a pastor, to build up the saints so that they can do the work of the ministry. Another aspect of church work is evangelism. These two go together. The stronger you are, the, the more you understand of God's word, the more we understand of the way of God and the purpose of God on the earth with this assembly, the more evangelistic and outlooking, outward-looking we will be. Because God is evangelistic and outward-looking. Remember that it was the purpose of God to save the nations. Out of every nation God is working. God is bringing all things together in one. That's what the scripture says. And we need to be part of that. Our church is, in fact, part of that. If God has ordained this church, established this church, and building this church, and adding to this church, then God's purposes are being fulfilled. One way or the other, God is working. I believe that. Or I wouldn't be here. God is involved. And part of what God is doing is part of God's plan for this church is to accomplish His will of bringing it together in line with Him and His Word. Have you ever studied John 17? It's called the the High Priestly Prayer of Christ, the intercessory prayer of Christ, John 17. In it, in John 17 and verse 21, our Lord prays. Uh, right on the heels of praying for those that will believe after their ministry. Those that will believe. He's talking about the apostles, but then those that will believe. They are, he's now praying for them. And those that believe include us, this generation. Uh, there's still people believing today, there's still people who believe and are baptized and joining to a church and live a life of faith today. And Christ prayed for them in John chapter 17 and verse 21. And he says that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee. That they may be one like we are. Our Lord prays for his churches that they might be one. In what respect? In what respect? As thou, Father, art in me and I in thee. That's the kind of unity I'm praying for. What does that mean? What is the oneness or the unity in the Godhead? What does that mean? The oneness spoken of in this verse is the same unity displayed in the Godhead. The word Godhead refers to the one true and living God. There is only one God and He is not able to be divided into any parts. The one God is always one. Okay? Yet, within the Godhead, there are three distinct persons. The Father, the Son of God, and the Spirit of God. And you say, Brother Pat, I can't grasp that. Well, welcome to the rest of us. Welcome. This, this class of people who have studied this will all say, I don't understand volumes that thick have been written on it well maybe not that thick but thick volumes have been written on it and come to the same conclusion can't quite figure it out that's a good place to be by the way may I suggest to you if all you have is a God you can figure out you don't have the real one God in heaven is infinite the God in heaven is a spirit You can't lay hold on some things or understand some things. But you are required to believe those things because God has said it. And so here is the Godhead, three distinct persons. Each has has his own purpose. Each fulfills his own purpose in agreement with the other two. And they're always in one accord. No person within the Godhead, neither the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit, ever acts contrary to the purpose of God. They're all working together to accomplish the purpose of God. And that's the unity that Jesus Christ is praying for. The unity prayed for, by our Lord Jesus Christ, that his believing people gather together and his believing churches would be unified exactly as the Godhead is unified. That is, unified in purpose. Unified in purpose. Our Lord is praying for his churches to be unified in the purpose of their existence. Why does this church exist? What is its purpose? Have you ever thought of it that way? Have you ever asked yourself that question? What is the purpose of Kuwaita Baptist Church in the grand scheme of things? In the very purpose of God, do we have a purpose for existing? I believe we do. And when every member begins to grasp that this church has a purpose and be unified in that purpose. It changes how we look at the world and it changes how we look at our brothers and sisters and it changes how we look at this whole assembly. Our Lord is praying for his churches that might be unified in regarding life and living. We are Christian. We are Christian people. We have taken upon our lips and testified publicly that Christ is our Lord and Savior. And that indicates a life that we have passed from death to life. And that life has something about it that is different from the world. And we need to be bound together as one people in unity with regard to what does it mean to live out my life as a Christian in my community. Our Lord is praying for unity that is revealed in spiritual things, not physical things. If every one of us came in dressed exactly the same, hair exactly the same length on the men, hair exactly the same length on the women, and all the clothes looked the same, and we would have a kind of an outward appearance of unity. That is not what He's talking about. That was Old Testament. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a unity of spirit, that our hearts are bound with God and His word, and with our hearts bound with God and His word, and our heart is bound brother to brother, because their heart is bound with God and His word, sister to sister, because her heart is bound with God and His word. and there is something that is bringing us together that is not outward, that is not physical but spiritual. And we got a nice building, but what if we didn't? And we live in peaceful days, but what if we didn't? Would we still be bound together as one for the cause of God and truth on the earth? This is what God is doing as He's bringing together in one. It will culminate in glory out of all the nations made one. Before the throne of of Jesus Christ. All of them testifying that God has saved them by his blood out of every nation. But it's not there yet. Part of the reason there is so much division among the Lord's churches. Is because the members of those churches do not understand the purpose of their existence. They don't understand why God has added me to this assembly. The Lord's request in John 17 and verse 21 goes on to say that they also may be one in us. John 17:21. Not only are the members of the Lord's church supposed to be in unity with each other, but the church is also to be in unity with God. And it's easy for people to say, I'm, I'm, I'm walking with God. Uh, this church believes in God. We believe in the true God. We believe God's word. It's easy to say those things. But that's not what Jesus Christ is praying for. He's talking about a union of spiritual communion and fellowship with God. The whole assembly. I, I say things, and sometimes they're taken wrong, uh, about people missing church. And it's not about legalism with me. It isn't, genuinely. It, what about, what is it about, preacher? Well, what it's about is, is there a heart for the people of God in this assembly to be joined with God and His Word? And what God says, is there anything in the heart about that? That? that's what I'm looking for that's what I want to know that's what I want to know about myself do I have anything of that in my own heart regarding the living God joined in unity with God what is God doing several weeks ago I said what is God doing is he doing anything if he's not doing anything here find out where he's doing something and go there and be part of that Because unity with God means you're involved with what God is doing. You want to be involved with what God is doing. True local church is supposed to function in agreement with God and His Word. What God says. Now we don't know everything God says, so we've got to learn it, right? We've got to study. And sometimes we find out we're doing things that are not what God says. and We've got to fix that. Well, that's all right, because the the goal is that I might be united with my God. That's the desire. That's what I want. And if I'm not there, I want to be there. True local church is united in its efforts to teach the Word of God so that every member may be useful in their efforts to help each other grow spiritually. I've mentioned that several times since being here that each one of us has a responsibility for the spiritual welfare of the other. And we're to encourage and strengthen and help each other. Well, the only way we can do that is to know the Word of God. We use God's Word to help people. Well, I think it's this. I, I don't, I'm glad for that statement, but chapter and verse. Chapter and verse. It's all we need if you're a child of God. Book, chapter and verse. Just give me that. And let me study it. That's all I want. That's all I want from you. That's all we want from each other. God, help me to help my brothers and my sisters understand the Word of God a little bit more than we understood it a day or two ago. True Local Church is united in its efforts to teach the Word of God To as many as they can. Not just the membership, but outward to as many as they can. As many as will have ears to hear, and will take heed to what God has said. And then it begins to expand, and not just here, but other places. And other places. And pretty soon, because our desire is to teach the word of God to as many as we can. We're involved in a lot of different places. Helping people in those places teach the Word of God to as many as they can. You see? You see that? That's God's purpose for this assembly. He is gathering together in one. All things. And there will be people brought in here that are different from us. I hope there are. I stood before our congregation uh, several years ago in Texas. And I knew and I could see that God was beginning to save people. But he was saving them out of the Hispanic culture and of the drug culture. And they were unchurched people. And I asked the church, are you ready and willing for God to bring in families in this assembly that have never been churched, that know nothing of the Word of God, that come out of the pit, out of a horrible, horrible pit. Drug dealers that God saved. woman with five children by five men that God worked in their heart and brought her into the assembly. Are you ready for sinners to be brought in here that children don't know how to behave They may not come in dressed the way you dress. They they are different. They think different than you. They don't understand Christianity. They don't understand church. They don't understand what you're talking about when you talk about uh, subjects that they've never even heard about in their life. Are you ready for this church to have 20 families like that? I went on to say, you know, sir, we're not, we're not a grade school where everybody understands how to write and read and, and do their math and we sit quietly and do our little papers and turn them into the teacher very quietly. We're turning this place into a nursery with babies that wet their diapers and babies that mess their diapers and pe- babies that throw up on you and you're going to have to fix that. You're going to have to fix that while you're helping them, while you're loving them. You ready to do that? Uh, of course, I was speaking in metaphors and probably a little bit of a hyperbole. they had going beyond what it was, but not so much beyond what it was as God began to bring them into the assembly. As a church on Wednesday night I began to pray that God would save sinners. I don't mind somebody coming from a Baptist church that doesn't understand and begin to see the doctrines of grace and where do I go, where do I go? There's a church over there. I love that. Praise the Lord for that. But that's not what the ministry is only about. As Wednesday night, as people ask God to pray, ask God to save sinners. Are we even praying that God would save sinners and bring them here? Oh, brethren. Are we... Bound together as one with our God. If not, what is it going to take to get there? That's the goal. That's the place to be. That's the place where I want to be. That's the place where I want this church to be. And it is a good thing where we are right now. It is. I'm not preaching this way because I'm Sad or I'm discontent or I'm disappointed. I'm not. We're in a good place. But let's not settle for good. Let's settle for best. Where can we go from here? Rejoice in what we have. Thank God for what we got. But there's more. And I want it. And I'm asking God for it. And I want you to want it. And I want you to ask God with me for it. And it starts with us. What does the scripture say? Judgment begins where? In the house of God. It starts with us. No revival ever began any place except first year. Then it just spilled out. But it begins here. It begins here. I love you guys. I pray for you. Not a day goes by that I don't go up and down every pew, every face, everyone praying. I know what the Scripture says can be. I believe that God will and is and will be working toward that goal. Join me in it. And if you're here without Christ, your only hope of being one with God and not separated from Him for all eternity. Your only hope in that is Jesus Christ. Amen. He's the only one who lay hold on God and lay hold on sin and bring them together. So they're one. He's the only one who can do that. You go to him. You seek him out. You will find that he never has cast out a sinner yet. Let's pray together. Blessed Father, we bow before the great God of heaven and earth, the high King of heaven,